0: And we're back. Thank you very much again for joining us for episode two of Incidents in Prague. Now, for this episode, we have moved 20 years into the 18th century now. It's 1726. Today's title is The Priest. And Rabbi Hirsch, I'm assuming this is about the church and its influence over the Jews at the time.
1: Well, actually, the heart of the story is about the relationship between a priest and and one of the greatest Jewish scholars of the 18th century. There is an expression that there's more than one way to burn a book. And censorship and confiscations had the same outcome, and they existed for centuries in Europe, although they are often less known of. As an example, uh, the Chidot in the late 1700s visited Provence, and records in his diary that he managed to smuggle in a single safer into Avignon, despite the fact that bringing in any new Jewish books was illegal. So, although we associate concealing Sforim and bans on the possession of any Jewish books with much more recent 20th century events and dictators, there is a much longer history to it. In 18th century Prague, matters progressed to the stage where the very transmission of Torah Shabalpah, of the oral law, was in danger. As we mentioned last week, the ownership of Jewish literature was heavily controlled in Bohemia. And when the Talmud was reprinted for the first time in many years in Frankfurt am de Oder, volumes were smuggled from Prussia into the Habsburg Empire. But paid informants told the church, and in 1712, the Jesuits, who were a powerful arm of the church, carried out searchers door-to-door throughout the city, using force where they felt it useful, and they seized hundreds of Jewish books. And then in 1714, the emperor, Charles VI, at the request of these Jesuits, issued an imperial decree requiring every single Jewish book in all of Bohemia to be brought to the Prague Town Hall for inspection, And those who failed to comply within six weeks would have all of their books permanently confiscated. So, you know, we normally link these things with the Nazis, but it was well and alive through the church centuries prior. It didn't come out of nowhere. And panic sets in because the question was whether it was better to hide some of these books and risk them being discovered and their immediate loss or hope that with enough time or with enough bribes the emperor would release them undamaged. And we need to understand that this edict included manuscripts which were hundreds of years old and had not yet been printed, as well as valuables for him and every single siddur, every prayer book in the country. Thousands of volumes were deposited in Prague, and they were divided into three categories. Works which were strictly forbidden, those that needed censoring, and those that were allowed, that were permitted. Over the next three years, many of the books belonging to the first category, and some belonging to the second, were destroyed in book burnings in Prague. The Talmud, Obviously, belonged to the most banned group, and 135 copies of the Talmud were taken from the Jews. So you know everyone knows of the infamous events in Paris in the 1240s, when 24 wagon loads of Talmud were burnt in public, and we are aware of the ensuing hardship that it created for the transmission of Torah. But we have to realize that the Habsburg Empire initiated a similar course of events, and they controlled Austria, Moravia, Silesia, Bavaria, Western Hungary. So if this became policy, it would have a disastrous effect. And to further ensure control over the Jews, Chief Rabbi David Oppenheim, who we discussed last week, was required going forward to take responsibility for censoring all printed material.
0: Not the sort of job he was desperate for, I can imagine.
1: Correct. He pleaded that after 27 years of serving as a rabbi, his strength had diminished, and that the time it required would effectively prevent him from carrying out his duties. So in 1716, Charles VI excused him as serving... Um, in the role of censor and appointed Simon Yetlis, a member of the Prague Jewish community, to perform what was called the pre-censorship of Jewish books. And, of course, to add insult to injury, this position was paid for by the Jewish Kehila. So Yetlis had to take responsibility for every book that was printed whether in Hebrew or in Yiddish, anywhere in Bohemia and Moravia, as well as any that were imported from other countries. And he would need to remove the most obvious prohibited content. Of course, any publication that he okayed was being vouchsafed by him, and if he had messed up, he would end up in jail. The next step after his pre-censorship was that one or two copies would be printed and it was checked by the church. And then the final printing was checked again to make sure that all the censorship had been carried out. And a copy of each publication was deposited in a building which still stands in Prague, which I point out on many of the tours there because most people walk by it unknowingly, and this copy would be used as a master copy for the future. And all of this was headed by the priest that we mentioned last week, Franciscus Hasselbauer. Now, as a result of all of this, in the 10 years, 1715 to 1725, very few copies of the Talmud existed in Bohemia. According to some sources, there were actually no copies, which is a fundamental text of Jewish learning, obviously. And the rabbis in the city at the time include the Shvus Yaakov, the Elia Rabbah, obviously the and Oppenheim. It was not a city without students and without academies. So the rabbis attempted a legal appeal to circumvent Hasselbauer. As I mentioned earlier, there was an edition that had appeared in 1699 in Frankfurt, which had the Hascoma, so to speak, of Emperors Leopold I, Joseph I, Charles VI, that had their right to be printed. And the support of these Holy Roman Emperors, as they were known, for the printing of the Talmud should have meant that it was forbidden to censor or ban or confiscate it. But it wasn't simple as that because how could they have permitted the publication of a work that had been denounced by the popes and been placed on the index of prohibited books? How could these emperors have allowed themselves to do so? So the Ramoyists claimed that the censorship on the 1699 edition had been carried out so effectively that it was allowed to be printed because most controversial passages had now been removed. So Hasselbauer finds out about this and he responds in 1726 and he says that the Frankfurt printers had simply committed what he called fraud because the emperor's privilege only extended to books that didn't contain any anti-Christian contents, which this Talmud did, and therefore, in retrospect, so to speak, Hasselbauer said that these editions were illegal, and they should, therefore, be banned and destroyed anywhere in the empire. So the community is now desperate, and they try a new approach, They agreed to submit their edition to a a Prague printing of the Talmud to corrections that were even more further reaching than those of the Frankfurt edition. They therefore understand that the price of publication of such an edition would be to agree to extended censorship. Now, Hasselbauer agrees with this, and the idea of publishing the Talmud in Prague is slowly gaining currency, but that's only until Hasselblower's real agenda was revealed. He didn't simply want to remove bits from the Talmud. He wanted to produce a work that would serve his missionary purposes. He would, in his eyes, be the first church figure to succeed in doing so. So firstly, he composes eight principles to be followed the removal of all agadata mentioning or alluding to Christianity and all blasphemies and insults against the religion, the removal of any Talmudic description of miracles, removal of anything that interpreted the Tanakh in a Kabbalistic or what they termed other irrational manner and the removing of all unseemly metaphors about Hashem. And the properly corrected Talmud would be given, in fact, a different title. But the censorship would go much further than that. It would do much more than simply eradicate negative content. It would highlight and, if need be, actually rewrite parts of the Talmud that would demonstrate the truth of Christianity to the Jews and therefore remove the authority of rabbinic Judaism. The aim was not just to take an anti-Christian book from Jewish hands. It was to give the Jews a book that was pro-Christian. Now, at this point, the elders of the community responded, saying if they did so, then simply no Jew would buy a copy of this Talmud. (laughs) So it's stalemate. Yes. But at this moment, Ravjöneson Iberschitz enters the fray, and he will work with Hasselbauer to produce Svarim. Where was he all this time? So he was a Dion of the Besdin in Prague, and he is known generally uh, for his svarim, for his genius, but also for his dispute with Ruvjak of Emden when they both lived in Germany in the 1750s. But actually, when he was in his 30s, this dispute was particularly prominent. In fact, for some the potential damage caused by the eventual printing of these publications it wasn't just the talmud but also chumish and siddha the potential damage overshadowed any possibly problematic views that he uh, that revibership had expressed in his Kabbalistic works or in his chemias in his amulets and that it occurs through his cooperation and friendly relationship with the local Catholic clergy was outrageous in the eyes of his detractors. And by the way, the fact that he cooperated and was on friendly terms with them, that part, is not an accusation which his enemies make, but which he wrote about quite openly, one would say almost proudly, in the introduction to his most famous halachic work, and we will come to that shortly.
0: Can you give me some examples of the changes actually made to the Talmud?
1: So there were many. To share maybe a few to give you an understanding of how far ranging they were, there were around 190 words removed from a piece in the Gomorrah, in Brochus we're talking here, Davov on base, 6b, which eliminated the entire section that discusses hashem wearing tefillin there were about 60 words removed from the composition of birkas haminim the blessing against heretics which is in the silent prayer and occurs in brochas 28b which in the previous editions of the talmud which had been censored such as most well known the Basel edition and the Frankfurt editions which we mentioned, this section had been censored such that the word Minim, which means heretics, was replaced by the word Malshinim, slanderers or informers, which is what we generally say today, because at that point the Christians could say it doesn't refer to them, which is You think about it a little bit childish, but nevertheless this is what they allowed to occur. But in the Prague edition, much more was removed, um, both from the Kumara and from corresponding passages in Rashi. And then under the heading of indecent or irrational material. So interpretations of dreams in the final and the ninth chapter of the tractate, the expressions of greatness regarding the Jewish people, for instance, the bracha to be said when one sees a king of the Jews, the king of Israel, that was taken out because it implies superiority to the Jewish people. And censorship was applied to anthropomorphic expressions, such as God crying. Narratives mentioning miracles or unnatural events were also eliminated.
0: Why were they eliminating miracles? It's not like Christianity doesn't believe in any miracles.
1: Because the very fact that the Jews are claiming that it happened to them shows that God would do this for them.
0: And only for them. Right. Mm. So what sort of miracles do they?
1: So you've got the story of Reboloza Ben his hair turning white when he was appointed the Nasi, famously Hareani Kven Shivim Shana, it is as if I am 70, even though he was only 18. Or the Sadducee, the Tzadokhi, who is turned into a heap of bones under the gaze of Rosheshesh. You have the story of Dina, which is now rewritten. There wasn't a change in the fetus in the middle of Leah's pregnancy. And it also restricts Judaism's hostility to idolatry as referring only to ancient times and to Eretz Israel in order to blunt its anti-Christian rhetoric. And the word Talmud, doesn't appear on the cover. You can actually download this on the internet the entire track date. The volume is renamed Hilchus Brochus, the Laws of
0: Brochus. Are there any originals left of the saint Talmud?
1: There could be a copy in Prague. There are in fact extensive documents and volumes, not so much in Jewish hands but in the hands either of the university or of a particular church institution, which is in the old city. But it's very difficult to get them to show you what you want to see. With an introduction, I guess, individuals who are writing on the topic would be able to, but uh, generally speaking, it's not in the public eye. Mm. And Rom Freed wouldn't have been able to sing Tanya because half of that was removed, as was another Gomorrah of Rabbi Shmuel, with the names of Suriel, an angel, and the Malachim the angel of death, being deleted. However, in that particular case, the censorship required extensive rewriting of the entire section, because the words spoken by the angels in the original text were now attributed to Rabbi Shmuel and Elisha. So the censors had to change the narrative from the first to the third person in order to fit it in, and they were rewriting. They weren't just taking a pair of scissors and removing text, which had been the case with censorship until then. What needs to be borne in mind is that, of course, someone like Hasselbauer was incapable of carrying this out on his own. You needed somebody who was proficient in the tractate, i.e., Rubienus and Iberschitz.
0: So then they print it on the basis of this partnership between them.
1: Yes, and Rav Iberschitz himself writes of his success in printing the Talmud. And he writes this in the introduction to Crecio halachic work, where he says, you know, I was vindicated and given permission to print the books of the Talmud, which wasn't given before, because he was referring to the fact that for decades, no copy of the Talmud could be printed in Bohemia. And there is... An archived document which explicitly mentions his involvement in censorship. It's not in Prague, it's in Schleswig Holstein, because in 1752, during the dispute that he had with Rvyakov Emden, Sir Rvyabeshit's detractors filed a case against him at the Royal Court of Denmark, and he requested letters of recommendation on his behalf from important Christians that he had known in the past, and one was written by Father Hasselbauer in 1753. He writes, I attest that Jonathan Eberschutz, the current chief rabbi of Altona, Hamburg and who resided here in Prague for more than 20 years and was always honest with us, He served as a chief rabbi and was appointed by his imperial royal majesty as a censor of the Hebrew printed books. In this capacity, he writes, we were in daily contact with him and we can say about him nothing but fame worthy and good things. This is the priest writing. When he moved to Metz in 1742, all the people here were displeased and wished he could have stayed in
0: Prague. I guess that's a sign of his genius, how he played them.
1: Yes, although he did have to cooperate.
0: Yeah. How did the Jewish world out of Prague react to the printing?
1: So the reaction was not long in coming. There was outrage, mainly out of fear that this would set a precedent for all other printings. An account of this is in a letter from Rav Moshe Chagiz, who was living in Altona at the time, which he wrote on Rosh Teves, the first of Teves. Which corresponded to the 25th of December in 1726. And he writes to a Polish rabbi who was part of the Vad Arba Oroz, so the Council of Four Lands, to say that certain individuals from the Prague community, he starts in the plural, he actually ends up in the singular, secretly conspired to obtain from the Jesuit order. Uh, He calls them hachomim, haromimim, babayis hakomrim. He got permission to print the Talmud according to Christian tradition. And that in order to do so, he, this individual who is unnamed in the letter, had been given a list of what should be added and removed. And then he writes, and I quote, We have missed the opportunity to prevent the publication of uh, Masechtus Brochus. However, there is still time to stop the process of the publication of the remaining tractates. And if we fail to do so, there would never be an end to the matter, because errors and distortions in the Talmudic text would accumulate, and future generations would not be able to recognize them anymore. And at the end of his letter, he asks that the rabbis in Poland take a radical course of action. He asks for an official rabbinic ruling ordering the Jews to burn the Prague Talmud. Hmm. Now, Ramesh Khagiz knew that the proposed burning would have a profound impact on Jews, not just in Bohemia, but beyond. He knew he was, I guess, quite literally playing with fire. His initiative had the potential to spiral out of control and fuel another Christian campaign against Jewish books. And he mentions this, that his proposed course of action might lead to more burning of Jewish books by the Catholic Church. But he made it clear that the issue that he was dealing with was no ordinary censorship and his opinion was that the edition had been corrupted to such an extent it was better not to have anything at all, anything printed at all. And he hoped this would also send a message to the church that there would not be this cooperation in the future. In fact, at the prodding of Rav Moshe Hagiz and Rav David Oppenheim, the Jews in Frankfurt bribed various officials to put an end to this edition and no
0: other volumes appeared. I sort of understand what you were saying, because a twisted version of the Talmud will get passed down as truth. But if it's just removed, it could be passed over father to son in way of oral law.
1: Right. But it was the judgment of a Talmud Chacham, a great scholar of Ibershitz, that without any texts to hand at all, even the halacha of the Gemara can't be learnt, And therefore it's worth the cost. It's true. He ends up in a minority position. So, whereas we can say that, you know, his writings today are completely accepted by the Jewish community, this decision was not an easy decision to make. Fortunately, you know, we live in times where we neither need to make these decisions nor decide who was right. Now, the testimony of Rabbi Bishchitz only appears in the first edition of his Crisio It was removed from subsequent print runs after his lifetime and, in fact, it's been removed from the scan on hebrewbooks.org, so it's not easy to find. Now, since we have mentioned Jews involved in censorship on behalf of the government, I want to briefly mention one other instance, and this one would be infamous by all standards. In the 1800s, there were two brothers by the name Tugendhold, who were brought up in Krakow. The older of the brothers, Yakov, left his wife one night to study in a Christian college, and he will eventually end up in Warsaw. In 1822, he was appointed to the government committee, to the Tsarist Committee for Censorship, which was run by an anti-Semitic priest. But this priest had no proficiency in Hebrew. So this Yakov steps in to help. And in 1860, he acted as an informant for the Russian government on Jews who had backed Polish independence against the Tsars, as a result of which Chief Rabbi Meisel's was expelled from Warsaw. His brother pressed for the closure of all Jewish printing presses across the Tsarist Empire, especially those in Hasidic hands, resulting in 1836 in the printing only being allowed in Vilna and Zhitomir. And he was given control of all the books printed in Vilna, and he records this, with pride his you know his actions and the results so there were renegade jews who acted without the positive motivation of revivers
0: and when did this chapter end when was the real talmud done to re-enter prague in the 19th century the reason we have the hagos of
1: rebutzal of regensburg printed on the page of the Talmud is because uh, he managed to bring about a printing of it he was also on very positive terms with the church censor but by the 1800s the church censor was no longer as fanatical in fact he was in many ways a friend of the Jews so he managed to get the the Talmud to be printed then
0: wow so we shouldn't be taking for granted all the Talmuds that we see in our shields and in our homes.
1: Absolutely. There is a story behind each and every one of them.
0: Yeah. Oh well, well, thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch, for joining us again. And we will, are we taking a, a yes. break? For...
1: Yes, we're taking a two-week break now, and then we will come back with parts three and four of Incidents in 18th Century Prague.
0: And that will give our listeners an opportunity to re-listen and relearn all the history that you've said till now (laughs) Um, (laughs) yes we'll
1: we'll be giving them a test at some stage
0: thank you very much again for joining us we'll see you in a couple of weeks to end off the Prague series thank you Rabbi Hirsch thank you